Okay, saints, today we are in the Gospel of John chapter 3. Now, last week, as I said that we would be beginning in this chapter, we covered on Wednesday the first 21 verses. And so as we started the, the, the chapter, we just made mention that this is probably one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, and in it is probably one of the greatest verses in the Bible. And for anyone who says, I have a hard time memorizing Scripture, or I can't memorize Scripture, I mean, who doesn't know John 3.16, for God so loved the world? I mean, so if you can memorize that one, you can memorize any. That one's already been done. But what's interesting is this. Our study this morning is not going to be John 3.16. Now, it may come as a shock to some of you. I see like... But don't worry, Um, what we're going to be doing is this. I still believe that John 3.16 is one of the greatest verses in all the scripture. However, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the foundation of John 3.16. What does John 3.16 rest upon? And it rests upon the verses just prior to it. So that's our text this morning, John chapter 3, verse 14, and I'll be reading verse 15. It begins this, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus declares this truth, John three fourteen. and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is saying that the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, as we're looking at this passage here in John chapter 3, understand that it begins in verse 1, that this man Nicodemus, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Jesus and Nicodemus are having a conversation. Now, the conversation isn't a, uh, a conversation that you and I would think makes a lot of sense. Usually when someone says, Hi, how are you doing? You say, fine, how are you? Or when someone says, how is the weather? You would say, oh, it's Wisconsin. It's nice now, but wait five minutes, it'll change. So you usually deal with that, you know, subject that's been introduced. Well, here, it's one of those things where someone says, well, how's the weather? And you say, you know what? It's an interesting place to live here in Milwaukee. And they think, what what does that mean? How do you get that from how is the weather? Now, Nicodemus comes and he says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with them. So what does Jesus do? Well, he says, all right, if you think I'm a teacher come from God, if you think I'm a teacher of the spiritual, then Jesus answers very clearly, and I love what Jesus does, When he has this conversation with Nicodemus, Nicodemus says, you are this teacher come from God. You're a spiritual teacher. What Jesus does is he teaches them a spiritual truth. And Nicodemus doesn't get it. Jesus here in verse 2 said, 
Listen, most assuredly, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, is that the question? Now, see, Nicodemus says, I know you're a spiritual teacher. Jesus said, well, let me teach you spiritually. And Nicodemus here is, is absolutely to this point where he does not understand. In verse 4, he says, how? How can this be? And uniquely, what happens is this, that as he does not understand, Jesus looks at him, and here in John chapter 3, verse 10, makes this statement, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? Now, at this point, we begin to see what's happening. So at this juncture where Nicodemus comes to the Lord, says you're a spiritual teacher, Jesus gives him spiritual direction, Nicodemus has absolutely no idea how these things can be. Jesus is astounded that he does not know. Because what's happening is this. Nicodemus is fulfilling that part of John chapter 1, remember there in verse 11 and 12. When John was writing this gospel, he made this statement, he, that is Jesus, came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He came and his own like, I don't understand who you are. I'm not receiving you for who you are. Now, Nicodemus had this understanding that Jesus was a spiritual teacher, but as he comes to Jesus, he's not receiving him. He calls him rabbi. He calls him teacher. But I love how others call him master, Lord, God, Savior. So whether Nicodemus thinks he's doing him a favor by calling him teacher, I'll elevate you because here I am. I'm a Pharisee, I'm a ruler, and I'll call you teacher. Jesus like, boy, you've just missed it. I'm way up here, and you're acknowledging, like, I'm really throwing you a bone here. And what we see here is this, that where it says in John 1, verse 11 and 12, he came to his own, his own did not receive him, but as many received as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. And this is what Jesus is trying to do for Nicodemus. He's trying to reveal himself to Nicodemus so that Nicodemus might believe and as he would believe that he would have the right, the privilege, the authority to become a child of God. And this is why here Jesus makes this statement in verse 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him, understand, believes in the fact that he was lifted up, believe in the work as he was lifted up. When you believe in him, then you shall not perish, but you shall have everlasting life. And that's the display of the love of God. And I find it amazing because here, what Jesus wants to help Nicodemus understand is that you can't come and make yourself better. In other words, that you can't improve spiritually. 
You can't improve morally. You can't come and just make yourself better. You have to understand that you are dead in sins. You can't become undead in your sins. What you have to do is this. You have to have a brand new life. And this is what Jesus is trying to show Nicodemus, that you have to literally be born again. In other words, like that passage there in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a what? New creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So what Jesus does is he tells Nicodemus of this sign. The sign is, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, Nicodemus is asking how this new birth is achieved, how this new birth comes to pass. He goes, well, how's it done? Can a man enter his mother's womb a second time when he's old? And he says, no, no, you're missing it. The way into this new birth is through believing in the work of Jesus Christ as the Son of Man is lifted up. And then as he's lifted up, verse 15 says, then whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Keep in mind that what John has been doing, we already made note of this at the very beginning when we started this gospel. This is the one book in the scriptures that gives you the reason it was written. There in John chapter 20, verse 31, where in verse 30 he says, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples which are not written in this book, verse 31, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The whole thing is about believing. The whole reason that John is, is writing this passage dealing with Nicodemus and the conversation with Jesus is that Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to believe. And as he would believe, he would then have the right to become a child, not of Israel, but of God. See, Nicodemus cannot come through his old lineage he is not going to be made right with God simply because he's a child of Abraham in the physical sense. The only way that he can be made right with God is when he becomes a child of Abraham in the spiritual sense. Where Abraham believed. And that was accounted to him for righteousness. See, Genesis teaches Abraham and us through the communication of God to Abraham, that Abraham will have two groups of descendants. One, his descendants will be as the sand of the sea in number. The multitude of earthly descendants will be great. And of course, we know how many people are of Israel heritage, more than the sands of the sea to number. But he also, God tells Abraham, is this, that your descendants will be as the stars in the sky in number. You'll have heavenly descendants. And so the scripture speaks of both descendants, physical and spiritual. And what Jesus is trying to teach Nicodemus, you cannot come by being a physical descendant. You have to be born again. You have to become a spiritual descendant of Abraham. 
And so what Jesus begins to do is to set the foundation of this incredible love of God by saying in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. The question that some of you have and the question that some of you know is this. What is that serpent? What is the serpent in the wilderness? That passage is found in the book of Numbers chapter 21. Turn there, if you will, in your Bibles, because we're going to camp there for just a little bit. But in Numbers chapter 21, what we see is this. It comes to this point in the journey of the nation of Israel, that it begins in Numbers 21, verse 4, then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. So they're about to go around that area that has the descendants of Esau. And it says this, And the soul of the people became very discouraged along the way. So at this point, as they're journeying, they're looking at their situation. They're looking at the journey. They're looking at all these other things. And it's interesting that they're not looking at God. And as they're looking at all these other things, it says they become discouraged. And maybe you have felt that as a Christian. That there are times where you look at your situation, you look at your finances, you look at your health, you look at your life, you look at your situation, and you're becoming discouraged. Now what's interesting is this. It's an amazing thing that when you begin to stop looking at your life and you look at God... And you realize, wow, my life should be nothing. My life should be death. I'm living in this cursed world. I should have no blessings. I should be Esau. I've hated. I should be an enemy of God. And yet he's loved me. He's displayed a love so great, so amazing. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. No ever, no one ever displayed that kind of love. No one ever acted on that kind of love. And so when you focus on God, all of a sudden it's what? Lord, you know what? I'm actually doing pretty good. There, there may be situations in my life, but, but this life is a vapor and then I have eternity. And in this life, which you redeemed, Whatever time I have here on earth, can I live my life for your glory? Can I live my life for your purposes? Because you've redeemed me. And now my life isn't my own. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I want to glorify you in my body and my spirit. Take my life. Use me as an instrument for whatever your will is. And amazingly, when you're used as an instrument of God, something amazing happens. There's joy. There's joy. When someone says, wow, you know what? God's used you to bless me. You're like, whoa, praise the Lord for that. There's joy that comes with that. But when you're focused on everything else, we become discouraged. And this is what was happening to the people here in Numbers 21.4. They were going around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people, verse 5, because of their discouragement, the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? 
for there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Now understand, when they said there was no food, every single morning God would provide manna for the people. And what they're saying is this, what you have provided for me is worthless. My soul loathes it. I deserve better. I deserve more. I should have more than what you have given me. It's amazing how highly we often think of ourselves on the spiritual realm. God, I deserve better than fill in the blank what your life is. I, I, I should have more than fill in the blank of what your life is. The bottom line is all of us as sinners by nature deserve death. That was it. We deserve separation from God, and anything is a bonus. And not only does he give us eternal life through the work of Jesus Christ, but then he gives us what? He gives us life here, joy, peace, power, to walk the things that he calls us to do, the joy to be known that we are his people. But here, they ask God, why did you lead me in this path? Why did you bring me into this wilderness? Well, let's see. You were in Egypt under taskmasters? <laughs> is that a good reason? And understand, this is a journey to what? To the promised land. And so when you're asking God, why am I here? He says, listen, this is a journey. That's all you are. You're on a journey right now. Eventually, it's heaven. But in this journey called life, he's teaching us about himself. He's teaching us about our own hearts so that one... When we go through situations to comfort where we're comforted, that we can comfort others. That we can tell people, you're not alone. God is carrying you. God is walking with you. That beautiful, you know, st story they have about the footprints. You know, when I'm, when I'm going through a rough time, I see one set of footprints. God says, well, I'm carrying you. That, that's what's happening. And this is what we begin to tell people, like, in these times that are hard, God is the one who's powering me. God is the one who's keeping me. But the people spoke against God. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to die? Well, he brought them to bring them into the promised land. And in this journey, he's providing for them. But they're saying very simply, our soul loathes this worthless bread. They are loathing the provision that God have given them. And so what we see is this. So the Lord, verse 6, sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpent from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 8, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put on a pole, and so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now the people are discouraged. 
The people are complaining. The people are telling God that his provision, the path that he has brought them in their life is all wrong. And so what we see here is the people are rebellious. I deserve more. I deserve better. And so what we see is the people themselves identify their state. In verse 7, where it says, Therefore the people came to Moses and they said what? We have sinned. This is their state. They are in rebellion. They are in sin. And you know what God does? He simply gives them what their sin deserves. He gives them fiery serpents that if anyone would, would, that when the serpents bit them, the people would die. And then understand that. He gives them what sinners deserve. Sinners deserve death. Don't, don't turn from here, but if you're a note taker, simply jot this down. I want to give you a couple passages to just sort of focus on just as, as we continue through this, this, this book. But in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 23, it makes this declaration, for the wages of sin is death. See, God is simply giving them the wages of what sinners deserve. He's giving them death. The wages of sin is death. What you've earned through sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. There's another passage right along with that there in the book of Romans, chapter 7, verse 13, where Paul said this, Has then what is good become death to me? In other words, the law that should have given me life, has it become death? Certainly not, but sin, the failure to do that, the rebellion in me, but sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might be exceedingly sinful. Do you understand? All he's saying is that what should have been good, this law to give me life, just produced death. My failure, my rebellion, my discouragement in what I do, it produces death in me through the law, which should have been life. There's another passage there in the book of James, and I want to share it with you. Within this, James chapter 1, verse 15, makes this declaration, Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. This is what happens. When, when God brings these serpents to these sinners, Understand what he's doing. He's giving them what sinners deserve. That's what you're seeing here. But what they didn't deserve was grace. What they didn't deserve was, was basically God is saying, all right, this is what's going to happen. We understand here that what you are doing through your rebellion, what you are doing through your sin that you are getting what you deserve, you are getting death. And so these serpents represent this shadow and the type of sin and death. That's exactly what we're seeing here. And there, 
Here in the book of Numbers 21, this, this is shadowed this temporary situation and this temporary truth. In other words, this initial rebellion, the curse that comes with it, and so it, it shadows this. Now, what happens is this. With Jesus, it's not a temporary situation just here on this day, but it's an eternal situation that we are eternally dead in our sins, and Jesus came to give us eternal life, not just life for the day. And so we see here this beautiful truth because the serpent of Moses that he makes, it takes away the curse of their sin, the death. But what it doesn't do is this, this bronze serpent on the standard is, is where, if you understand that symbol, bronze is the medal of judgment. The serpent, of course, is that symbol of sin, where sin is judged, and it's sitting upon a standard. For those of you that do not understand what a standard is, a standard is a pole made of wood. So it's a wooden pole that has a cross piece on it. In other words, it looks like a cross. Because what they would do is they would hang a piece of cloth from that cross piece and it would come down and be tied to the standard. Most of their, their the, what they had was they're in a triangle shape. And so the two top parts would be put on that, the, the cross beam of the standard, the lower part attached to the bottom piece of the wood. And so we see here that sin is judged on a wooden cross. And that's what they were seeing. So when we do see this, the curse was judged, but now here the symbol is the curse is judged. The, the serpent, the result of your sin, the curse that came from your sin, the death through the biting of the serpent that came through your sin is now judged upon a standard, is now judged upon a wooden pole. But what it didn't do is this. It judged the sin or judged the, the curse, but it didn't judge the sin. And this is why it's only a shadow, why it's a type, because Jesus Christ on the cross, not only does he judge the sin, but he also judges the curse. Two passages to be aware of that I want you to just jot down while you're here. The first is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where it makes this declaration, for he, that is God, made him, who is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, when Jesus was there on the cross, Scripture says this, the handwriting of the requirement that was against us, call it sin, was taken out of the way, having been nailed to the cross. Jesus became sin nailed sin to the cross. He literally allowed himself as he became sin to be nailed upon the, the cross to take the full judgment, the, the penalty of what it is that God needed to do. But on top of that, what we begin to see is this. Not only did he take the sin by removing it from us, nailing it to the cross, but he also took the curse there's two passages in Galatians chapter 3 that help you focus on it, verses 10 and 13. They speak this, Galatians 3.10, For as many as are the works of the, of the law are under the curse. 
For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So if you fail in one point of any law, you're already under the curse. But what happens is this. In verse 13, it makes a statement, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So amazingly, as here, this serpent in the wilderness, there in this book of Numbers 21, does remove the curse, the, the death that's come through the bite of the serpents to anyone who looks at it, what we see is this. It doesn't take away the sin. They still had the sin. Now, this is where Jesus is saying, we're going to do one step up. See, because I'm going to remove that sin. I'm going to take that sin upon myself. I'm going to go to the cross. I will take the, the full wrath of God. I will nail that sin upon that tree. I will bring the curse, and the curse will be there nailed upon that tree, and it will be paid in full. This is so incredible, and this is what Jesus is trying to teach Nicodemus. And so we see here that God had sent the serpents simply in response to their sin. A curse of death for sin and rebellion. Now understand, as they have sinned, if they've been rebellious, as this curse of death has now come upon them, God Note this, God and God alone is going to choose the method of deliverance. Do you understand? God, God didn't say, all right, well, well, here's what you do. Get out a sacrifice, do this, do that. He didn't say that. His only method of deliverance was look upon this bronze serpent upon the standard. That's the only way that, that you will not die. So God initiates, God establishes, God chooses the method of deliverance from the curse that he initiated because of their sin. I'm going to bring the curse, but I'll also give you the method to bypass it, to have it overcome. And so we see here that this is the only path that they had to be saved from death. The only path. They could say, is there something else I could do? No, there's only one thing. You look upon the judgment of sin there upon the tree. That's it. That's the only method, the only way, the only standard to which God accepts as deliverance, as the path to life, as the path for salvation. Something about the serpent is unique because understand that when God does give the serpent. The serpent is not going to stop anyone from being bitten. Make a note of that. The serpent does not stop anyone from being bitten. In other words, the serpent upon a standard is not preventative. It's not a determinant to say, oh, if you look at this, you'll never be bitten. Keep in mind, those serpents are, are not removed from their presence. I do believe that everyone is going to be bitten. And, and the reason I believe it, well, think about it this way. We're all bitten. Every one of us have the poison of the serpent, the sin nature in us. Every one of us. 
And, and, and so because of that, we begin to see that, that anyone who believed on the method that God chose would prevent the consequences of the curse. And so we as Christians, as we believe in the method that God has chosen to free us from the curse, to free us from sin, that we too, as we believe in that method, that we prevent not the curse, but we prevent the consequences of the curse. We prevent the separation from God. We prevent the death from sin. And this is what we begin to see here because as, as God begins to direct us, the, the looking, believing on that serpent, the, on that standard, God's only path to salvation would become their life. There's a passage, just jot it down. You're, you're aware of it, I know. I'm just going to read it to you just so that you can kind of have it to hold on to in your notes. But Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, it makes this statement. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Now, not we will be healed. We are healed presently, perfectly, again and again and again. We are healed the same way as that they would be healed. You look at this symbol that God had set up, and then we recognize this is who we are. Now, now understand this, that what Jesus is declaring is this, that we are all, as he's trying to share with Nicodemus, John is writing this down so that we all can believe this truth, that we are all under the same curse, the curse of death, every one of us. Now, I want you to understand that, that our death is eternal, not temporal. See, their death was going to be temporal. Oh, we're all going to die. Yeah, that's fine. But for us, we're not worried about the physical death. We're worried about the spiritual death being eternally separated from God. And what Jesus does is this. He makes this declaration that in the same way as that they were facing a temporal curse, a positional curse, that we are under what? An eternal curse. That's the position that we're under. There's a passage in the Gospel of John. Right after that amazing verse of God so loved the world, it says this in verse 17 and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. So he didn't come to bring condemnation. He came to bring salvation. It says this in verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned but he who does not believe is condemned already. Do you understand? They are already condemned. We all were already condemned. That's our initial state. What Jesus does is this. He comes to negate the original state of being condemned and gives us a new state of being born again, having eternal life, having a spiritual life, being made right with the Father. This is what we begin to see here and why Jesus so wonderfully begins to 
lay this foundation to Nicodemus so that he might believe and lay this foundation so that we might believe, understand that what we're doing is that we're seeing here that Jesus does not come to bring a condemnation. Because as it said there in John 3, verse 18, he says that we have been condemned already. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Do you understand that unless you receive the work of Jesus Christ, the condemnation is already there. And verse 19 says, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. In other words, the light would come, he would be lifted up and you would reject that light. It's so incredible to see here that, that every person you and I and every person, we've all been bitten by sin. We've all had that sin nature. And Jesus has come to save us from the two things, the consequences of sin, the death and the curse. And this is what he has come to do. And so understand is here when Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So incredible. Now, here's the catch. And I, I want to bring this to you because I've been pondering this through just as, as God gave me this passage to share with us. And, and my thought was this. When he tells Moses there in, in, in that, that, that verse 8 where he says, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent. Make a fiery serpent. Well, it's interesting that if you are familiar with the commandments, there in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, God had made this statement to the nation Israel, and he says this, Exodus 24, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. He says, don't make any, and, and it's unique where he says carved image. And now he tells Moses, make a bronze serpent. Okay, now, now this got me. This really began to cause me to come in and to, to pray. Now, not only this, but God would instruct Moses to teach the children of Israel there in Exodus chapter 25, where he begins to say, I want you to build me this tabernacle. The very first thing, thing that they are to build is called the Ark of the Covenant with a mercy seat on top. And uniquely, it says this in Exodus 25, beginning in verse 18. It says here, 
And you shall put into the ark of the test, oh, verse 18, and you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work, and you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, the other cherub at the other end, and you shall make cherubim at the two ends of it, one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I give you. And then he says in verse 22, and there I will meet with you. Okay, Lord, do we make images? Do we not make images? Here you're telling Moses, make a fiery serpent, tell him, put that on a standard. Here you're telling the, the children of Israel, make, make cherubim, one on either side, two of them. Put that on the mercy seat, use that to cover the ark. And so understand that here God is going to tell the children of Israel to make these things. Now, are they idols? Are the things that God is telling them to make, is this a direct contradiction of what he actually declared to them where he said, do not make for yourself? Well, understand, they're not making it for themselves. They're making it what? For God. So understand that first and foremost. God is instructing them to make both the fiery serpent and to make the cherubim. So they're not making it for themselves they're doing it as a command to the Lord, first and foremost. The next thing is this, that what Jesus does is this. He declares that the serpent is going to be a pointer. So when Jesus makes that statement there in John 3, 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So the serpent is a pointer to another process, another that is going to be lifted up on a standard or on a tree on a cross. And so we see here that this, this serpent, in the same way as those cherubim, the cherubim become not the focal point but understand, the cherubim are those beings that God had made there in heaven. They're the ones that declare the glory of God. And it says that Satan himself was an anointed cherub. He was one of the cherubim. And, and as we see that, they're, they're glorious beings. Satan himself transforms himself as an angel. Like they're glorious. His beauty was incredible. But you have two cherubim. Two cherubs, one on either side, and, and guess what? Then you have the glory of God right there in the middle. And all they are is the focal point of man, is as much as these are, <laughs> and nothing compared to the glory of God. And so he uses them as pointers. Both of them, these beautiful beings that God created, are now bowing their face, humbling themselves their face is going towards that mercy seat where the glory of God is resonating. So understand that what they become is this, the cherubim on the mercy seat that would cover the ark, these cherubim would not be the focus, 
but they would be a pointer to focus on the glory of God. So make a note of that. They're not the focus, but they're a pointer to focus on the glory of God. As the same way that the serpent that Moses would make would be a pointer for the glory of God. It would be a shadow. It would be a symbol to which what? That they would be able to focus their faith. In other words, God says, you look, you live. What does that mean? Look and live. It means that you have to be acting in faith. It's a pointer to faith. And this is what we begin to see. When you act on the word of God, and the word of God you find out to be true without error, now you come and you say, wow, when I focus on the word of God, Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And, and as he recognized it as he's lifted up, that whoever believes in him as he's lifted up wouldn't perish. You wouldn't die. You wouldn't have the curse, but you'd have this everlasting life. You'd have this new birth that would be eternal. And so we see here that the serpent simply becomes this pointer. It becomes a pointer that what? That you can believe. That's why John wrote the book, that you could believe in his name, you could believe in his work, that you could have eternal life. And so the serpent is simply, it's a, it's a type, it's a shadow to the true work that's done through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. That's what this becomes. Now, I do want to share with you a passage to conclude, in a sense, what happens to that serpent. Understand that the serpent was used only one day. The serpent wasn't kept in the, the tabernacle. It wasn't kept in the Ark of the Covenant. It just wasn't. It was just there. It was done. But uniquely, it says this. There's a passage in 2 Kings chapter 18. In the first four verses, it talks of one of the kings of Israel by the name of Hezekiah. It begins this, I want to read chapter 18, the first four verses. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, the king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. So he's the 15th king of Judah. He's the seventh good king that Judah has had. It says in verse 2 that he was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. Verse 3, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. And then in verse 4, it says this. He removed... Hezekiah removed the high places. He broke the sacred pillars. He cut down the wooden image. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. It's interesting that the serpent that was at one point just a pointer to faith became something that was idolized. It became something that was greater than its initial tool. And so we see here that what he, 
Hezekiah does is he breaks in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses has made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. They would take this thing and they would idolize it. They would take this thing and they would make it into an icon. They would make it into something that would say, now this is the focal point. No, the focal point wasn't the serpent. The focal point was, but God's saving you of the sin. And as we recognize those truths, what we begin to see here is he breaks in pieces it. And the people had burned incense to it. And until that day, they had called it Nehushtan. And Nehushtan simply means it's a thing of bronze. He said, it's simply a piece of bronze. Yeah, it's a serpent. Moses hung it upon a standard, but it's a thing of bronze. And so we begin to see here this heart. And I want you to see here that, that so many people, rather than looking at John 3.16 as, oh my goodness, this is the foundation of the love of God. That I didn't deserve it like the children of Israel didn't deserve it. They sinned. The wages is death. But God says, I'm going to give you an alternate route. I'm going to give you a route to life. One that you don't deserve. One that you haven't earned. And one that you can never repay. I'm going to give you my son, Jesus Christ, his death on the cross. But what happens is this. I do believe that there's a lot of people who look to Jesus as Nehushtan. He's something that I need to idolize, something I can burn incense to, but he's not the path to life. And I think there's a lot of people who know of Jesus, a lot of people who understand, hey, I'm getting to understand who Jesus is, but they don't recognize him as he is the path to life. And, and, and so is Jesus just an icon that we look to? Oh, we just look to the cross. We, we look to, you know, a man on the cross. Is that all we do? And we see that. And I think there's a lot of people who wear crosses. There's a lot of people who wear crucifixes. But in all honesty, that just becomes what? It becomes exactly what this is. It becomes a Nehushtan. It just becomes a thing. But what God wants us to recognize is that here, Jesus wants us to look in faith. And realizing that this is not just a little thing, this is a life thing. In the same way that he tried to teach Nicodemus, where Nicodemus says, well, I don't know how these things can be. And of course, Jesus taught him about the spirit. You have to be born of the water. You have to be born of the spirit. And the wind blows where it wishes. And, and, and you don't know where it comes from, where it goes. And that's the same thing of those who are born of the spirit. The spirit moves as the spirit needs to move. And so what the Lord is saying is this. He's telling Nicodemus very simply, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man must be lifted up. Now, just to help you be clarified on what this lifting up is, so often we, we say, well, we're just going to lift you up and lift you up and, you know, elevate you, worship you, acknowledge you. And there are some people who say that that is what this lifting up is. You have to worship Jesus and, and that's the key. That's the key to life. And, and, and it, it's true 
it comes that, but the lifting up is not what he's referring to here. There's a passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 28. John makes this statement, Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, when you lift him up, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. So he now goes on and says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am that path to eternal life when you lift me up. Another passage also in the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 12, I want to read to you verses 31 and verse 30, or 31 through 33. It begins this. John chapter 12, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus makes this statement in verse 32. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. Verse 33. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. He said, if I'm lifted up. Now understand that there came a point with the nation of Israel that they wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to. They tried over and over to kill him. Throw him off a cliff. We're going to stone him. All these other things. They wanted to kill him. Yet he could only die in one way. He had to go to a cross. He had to be lifted up. He couldn't be stoned. He couldn't be beheaded. He couldn't be stabbed. He couldn't be assassinated. He had to be crucified. There's a passage so intriguing found in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, beginning in verse 29. I want to read verses 29 through 32. Because Pilate goes out to the Jews when, when, when they bring him in. Pilate went out to the Jews and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said, said to him, If you were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. So what has he done? Just know that he's bad. They didn't say anything. He said, if he wasn't bad, we wouldn't have brought him. Just know that we're bringing him to you. Well, Pilate, verse 31, said to him, You take him. And you judge him according to your law. If he's so bad, go ahead, stone him. Go ahead, do your thing. You understand what Pilate is giving them permission to do? If he is an evildoer according to your law, I will give him to you. You kill him the way that you seem fit. Cut off his head, stone him, do whatever you want to do. And so Pilate so wonderfully makes a statement, verse 31, Pilate said to them, you take and judge him according to your law. Therefore, the Jews said to us, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. We can't lawfully kill anybody. And as they begin to say that, so amazingly, what we see is this. Verse 32, 
when they said it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke signifying by what death he would die. We can't put him to death. No, you can't. The cross, that's the only path. It's the only thing you can do. And the Jews did not have the cross as a path to death. And so amazingly understand that what Jesus is saying is when I'm lifted up, signifying by what death I'm going to die. Go ahead, Jews, go ahead, kill him if you want. We can't. He had to go to the cross. And this is why in John 19, verse 6, therefore when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus had to be crucified. No other death would do. You understand, this is the one pointer that this is God who pays for our sin. God says, your sin is so horrible, your death is so secure, that the only thing that can redeem you from the eternal death, from the eternal curse, is what? An eternal God. He will die. And absolutely amazing, we begin to see here that not only as we see this portion where Jesus himself is saying, I have to be lifted up. I have to be lifted up. Understand, I'm going to go back to John chapter 12 for just a moment because we see here that before Jesus in verse 33, signifying by what death he would die, it makes this statement in verse 30 where Jesus said, um, or verse 31, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. I want you to realize one last thing that Jesus does on the cross. That not only does he take away our sin, not only does he take away the curse, but what we see is this, that Jesus also defeats the enemy. He simply says, you no longer have authority. You no longer have that power over the people. And so as he does that so beautifully, he says, this is the judgment of the world. I've now judged it. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The enemy will no longer have authority over Christians. The children of God are now free from the enemy. If you want it, he no longer can move you. He's been rendered inactive. This is the heart of the scripture. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, it makes this statement about the cross. It says this, Having wiped out the handwriting of the requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And this is this, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. In this cross, there is victory. Not only the eternal victory over death and curse and the sin, 
but it's also, and this is what here, going back to the serpent in the wilderness, was a temporary victory, an earthly victory, a victory on this side of heaven. Jesus gives us that too. You understand that the type of Jesus doesn't just take what Moses did in the temporal and fulfills it now in the eternal. He says, I'm going to fulfill the temporal and the eternal. Jesus doesn't just amp it up. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. And so when the enemy says, grumble, complain, be bitter, do these things, understand that we no longer have to do that because what? We recognize above all things one glorious truth. We're responding not because of the journey we're on. We're responding not because of the world that we're in. We're responding not because of the life that we're living. We're responding because of John 3.16. We're responding to the love of God. For God so loved the world. And if you want, insert your name. You can. If you're, you're part of that. You can say, God so loved Lowell. And you can put that in your Bible too. I'm okay with that. But, but put your name in there. Say, say, God so loved you that what? He gave his son. That the son was lifted up. He was crucified so that you and I, by faith, would just look to him. The only, the only path, the only method for the eternal life. So when Jesus is going to Nicodemus, says, Nicodemus, you don't understand. You must be born again. Not, not, not you should be. He said, you must, unless one is born again. You can't enter the kingdom. You don't have eternal life. You're not a child of God. And as we begin to see this, this is the heart that God begins to show us. And as he begins to show us his heart, as he begins to show us his will, we now understand this glorious truth. God, you have done the work. You have allowed us to begin to see this love. This love that, that greater love hath any man that he would lay down his life. And Jesus went to the cross. He went to to that work so that we could look to his work by faith. And as we look to that work by faith, we have freedom from sin. We have freedom from the curse. And we also have freedom from the influence of the enemy. And this is his heart and this is his will. And I think for us to stand on John 3.16, now we have a foundation that we underscore it. Now we have a foundation that we begin to hold on to. And so with that, Saints, walk in this victory. Walk in this victory that is ours. Walk in this victory that is yours. Amen? Amen. Oh, Father, we are so grateful for who you are and how you work. Lord, just your goodness and your grace. That we are not subject. We are not subject to the curse. That this curse in which every man, woman, and child is condemned already. Because we all have the poison of the serpent coursing through us. But you have changed that course. You've altered it. You've made it insignificant because you've given us new life. A perfect life. An eternal life. And not only do you deal with it as the eternal sin, the eternal death, the eternal curse. But you also, Lord, give us power in today. Power to walk power to live, power to have joy, power to worship, power to be 
become an instrument of your will. Do it. Do it, Lord. Use us for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, amen.